Nehemiah chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 4 through 13 this morning. Now, I know that um, your uh, bulletin says 4 through 31, but we will actually be in verses 4 through 13. Excuse me, as I pulled this off and try to reconnect it. Never mind, I'm going to shut my microphone off. All right, we'll just use the pulpit mic. I, I usually have no problem speaking loud enough for people to hear me. So, verses 4 through 13 is what we are going to look at. Again, um, your bulletin says 4 through 31, but I decided to only preach half a sermon today. So, we are going to look at verses 4 through 13 um, instead this morning. So uh, if you'd like to find your way there, then then I encourage you to do so. We'll look at those in just a minute. Um, Nehemiah had given 12 years towards his work in Jerusalem. Uh, when his main task was complete, he made his way back to Susa to report to the king of what was going on and after he had been in Persia for an unspecified amount of time, he obtained permission to return again to Judah. It seems like he um, was away at least a few years because during his absence, some of the men have married foreign wives and raised families with children who did not know the Hebrew language. And when he gets to Jerusalem, things are not like he had left them, though he had exercised an exemplary influence on the everyday life of the people. Once he left the city, the standards in the city began to fall. And despite that large number of people that had put their seal on the covenant, things drifted severely. Now to be clear, these things usually do not happen suddenly. Usually you don't suddenly um, stop doing what the Lord has you to do or dramatically, but these things happen gradually. It is certain that the people slowly started to do things without asking whether God's word had anything to say on the subject or not. They began to live for themselves rather than living for the Lord. They stopped giving generously to support the Levites as they had promised to do. And without their regular teaching ministry, the men and women were no longer reminded of spiritual values. Israelites all over the country neglected the scripture's provision for the Sabbath and marriage and family concerns were no longer being subject to divine direction. And soon Judah's faith was affected. Its religious, commercial, and domestic life became less than what God had intended for it to be. The temple marketplace and the homes were no longer places where God's name was revered and his values honored. All of the circumstances of the preceding chapter, the devoted choristers that we read about, the reliable gatekeepers, the gifted instrumentalists, the greatly valued priests, and the committed Levites, that's all replaced by dependent Levites, silent singers, disobedient tradesmen, ungodly merchants, materialistic nobles, and spiritually negligent husbands. 
The great exemplary leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah had given way to the daunting and damaging leadership of Eliashib and an unnamed son of Joadiah. If you're willing and able, I would ask that you please stand out of respect for God's word this morning as we read Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 4 through 13 this morning. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering and frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions of the priests. And while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king, and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, And then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. And so I confronted the officials, and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? They gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalaman, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we never say, why is the house of God forsaken? Oh Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Would your word penetrate our hearts and lives this morning? May we be a different and changed people. Because your word penetrates our hearts and our lives. Brings restoration. Brings healing. Even brings into our heart conviction. So Lord, I pray that your word accomplishes what you set it out to do this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Final chapter of Nehemiah is a warning to all against spiritual carelessness. Reminds us just how easily and imperceptibly things can slip in our lives. Just because you live a healthy spiritual life for a year is not a guarantee that it will always be that way. The fact of the matter is we can come to a point where we love the world more than we actually love Christ. People change, and guess what? Churches also change. When John writes the letter to the church of Asia Minor, the believers at Ephesus possessed exceptional qualities 
Like hard work, endurance, loyalty to the truth, discernment, courage, and patience. But what happened? Over the years, they lost what was the best thing. They had forsaken their first love, John says. And the call to that church is to repent and do the things that they had done at first. These Ephesian Christians were warned that if they did not recapture the former love for Christ, their witness would first diminish and then it would disappear altogether. Listen, despite their privileged beginnings, despite their immense resources and even their commendable experience, their glowing lampstand was removed and the light extinguished in one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. And so when Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem, the flame of Israel's distinctive testimony was just flickering. If their lowering standards were allowed to continue soon, the nation's unique spiritual influence would be diminished altogether. The people of God were meant to be a light for the Gentiles and they were destined to take salvation to the ends of the earth. However, they were no longer even zealous for the Sabbath. The marketplace was just as crowded on the Sabbath as any other day. The Israelite children are being more influenced by their pagan mothers than their Hebrew fathers and even the priests were as guilty as anyone else. Nehemiah's concern is not just restricted to the capital city. But he is concerned with the visiting towns and the villages of Judah. He saw the deteriorating standards in Jerusalem were affecting everywhere else. The city was only in name holy, but they were no longer holy in reality. The final paragraphs of Nehemiah's memoirs here in chapter 13 Describe for us the reformation that took place under his vigorous leadership. Here's what we will see this week and in the next week. Glaring sins had to be exposed and expunged. Damaging social problems had to be publicly acknowledged and rectified. The final chapter of the story describes for us in detail how various offenses are put right. And we see people had grieved God and forsaken God's house in several ways. This morning, we will look at just two of them. And then next week, we'll look at the last two. So the first one is this. God's house is defiled. God's house is defiled. A prominent Ammonite who had earlier done everything possible to frustrate the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls had been given a spacious living accommodation in the temple. If you remember, Tobiah had been a sinister, outspoken enemy of the work. Yet Eliashib, who's the priest at the time, has given this Ammonite select rooms which were formerly used to store the temple's offerings and articles. These rooms would not have been just used for storage. Certain accommodations in the temple were set aside for ministering priests gatekeepers and singers who lived elsewhere in Judah but would regularly visit the city and uh, the temple for work assignments during the year and so they would stay in the temple to provide Tobiah with room they they clear it all out and they say well Tobiah can come and and stay in the temple the services of the priests and the gatekeepers and the singers are no longer needed 
We no, 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 no longer need them to officiate over the house of God. Now certainly Jerusalem's high priests would have at least been aware of what was happening in the temple. And they can't be free from blame or he can't be free from blame. Those who are in a position of leadership must ensure that people to whom they have delegated responsibility are serving in a matter which glorifies God and meets the needs of the people. This account of Tobiah taking up residence in the temple is a severe warning. Eliashib had been entrusted with a privileged responsibility, but by cultivating the wrong relationship, he misused his office and frustrated God's work. He'd been put in charge of the storeroom. When the covenant was renewed, it was to this same room that the Levites brought their tithes, and it was there that the Israelite people, along with the Levites, were to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil, commodities that were used for the daily sacrifices. This accommodation was also used for the housing of the temple's visiting personnel. So what would often happen is that specific duties would be assigned to individual priests. And Eliashib here is assigned the task of ensuring the storeroom was available or the storerooms were available for their intended purposes so that Jerusalem's worship would be maintained in a regularly orderly and dignified manner. And these are places to receive these offerings and house the sacred items of the temple and accommodate the Lord's servants. So Eliashib had this unique opportunity to honor the Lord by doing his necessary job in a manner that would be pleasing to God, but it all went wrong, and it went wrong in at least five ways I want us to explore this morning. Five ways it went wrong. Way number one, first, Eliashib cultivated the wrong relationships by being closely associated with Tobiah. The text says to us that he was related to Tobiah, and so the chapter begins and ends with a story of two priestly families who compromised their loyalty to God's word. Close ties were developed between Eliashib and Tobiah. And that association was, was not to Eliashib's advantage. Our lives can be ruined by damaging relationships. Absolutely ruined by damaging relationships. The apostles were eager that the early Christians should live in the world as as consistent and attractive witnesses, which is what we are called to do to the love and power of Christ. But these leaders knew all too well that while involvement in the world is a crucial necessity, absorption into the world is a, is a reoccurrent danger. And so we have to be careful. We have to be on guard against bad, ungodly relationships. Number two, Eliashib seriously misused his office. He used a holy privilege for an unholy purpose. That, that room or the rooms were intended for a place um, of, of, of storage and to house the singers and the Levites, but, but Eliashib puts a dangerous opponent of God's people in there. It was meant for higher things, but in his, in his zeal to 
pleased Tobiah, Eliashib marginalized the spiritual priorities that the room was dedicated to. And tragically, the priest's moral indifference and spiritual carelessness is not an isolated act of disloyalty. Throughout history, there have been many people who have been given the opportunity to do great works for the Lord. Instead, by their inconsistent lifestyles, have brought dishonor to the name of God and damaged their own witness. Anyone who is entrusted with a responsibility in Christian work must ensure that their lives does not contradict their message. They have to. And so if you're doing Christian work, you must, you must make sure that your life doesn't contradict the message that you are giving forth. Number three, Eliashib frustrated God's work. In verses 10 through 13, we have this explanation of the people withholding their gifts to the temple for the support of the temple personnel. The Levites and the singers were compelled to give up their ministry to go work in the fields so they could maintain their families. So they, I guess they became like a bivocational pastor at that time. I don't know. But they could no longer do the work in the temple. They had to go out into the fields and do the work. And so they were no longer involved in temple work. When we really don't know which came first, the people's disobedience about giving, thereby providing vacant rooms in the temple for Tobiah, or the priest's transgression using a room for improper purposes, so there was nowhere for the gifts to be stored, and nowhere for the neglected singers and gatekeepers to stay. We don't know which came first. During Nehemiah's administration, gifts for the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been faithfully provided. Still, the improper occupancy of these rooms by the enemy of God disrupted that generosity and sent the wrong message to the Israelite people. It suggested that their materialistic advantage took precedence over spiritual opportunity. Number four, sin is never an isolated phenomenon. Sin is never an isolated phenomenon. One transgression inevitably leads to another. The sin of greed, which made the people neglect the practical support of the Levites, may have created empty rooms in the temple, but those rooms would soon be occupied by an unsuitable person. Neglecting to do good will often spawn an opportunity to do evil. A failure to love and show kindness to someone in need can give rise to emotional pain, a sense of neglect, the complaint of negligence, criticism by others, and, and is the iniquity that just begins to multiply and multiply and multiply. Sin always spreads. It never stays where we think it's going to stay. A careless or cruel word, just think about it. Uh, we use words all the time, but a careless and cruel word seldom dies in unreceptive silence. It's like a destructive missile which is hurled into future conversations, wreaking further havoc wherever it goes. And so that thing that flies out of our mouth carelessly often creates problems down the road. Sin is never an isolated phenomenon. <coughs> Number five, 
Eliashib was not sensitive to the seriousness of sin. Had he lived closer to God, he would never have allowed Tobiah to live on the sacred precinct of the temple. The temple was built to honor God. The temple wasn't built to promote self. We sometimes have that problem today, right? Where we use the church to promote self rather than to honor God. The priests over familiarity with holy things made him careless about spiritual issues. He knew no Ammonite should be admitted into the assembly of God. He was no longer an obedient servant to the word of God, which was the calling of every single priest. Eliashib turned away from following God and no doubt caused others to stumble as he sought to only please himself. He refused to recognize the seriousness of his sin. And now Nehemiah sees Eliashib's act and he sees it for what it is, right? He sees it as an offense against the holy God and a public denial of the priority of spiritual things and an act of blatant disobedience to scripture. Nehemiah could not view this act as some sort of friendly gesture to an influential visitor. What's he do? Nehemiah calls it exactly what it is, right? He says it's evil. Every believer needs to have a greater sensitivity to sin far too easily the ugly thing becomes tolerated and even sometimes viewed as a useful thing and then a permissible thing and finally it's an attractive thing and that doesn't happen in a moment standards are eroded gradually and slowly sin becomes known by another name We just call it something else. And we accommodate at one stage of life those things which were totally unacceptable to us at another stage. And that is how great empires have fallen. And and disintegration takes place gradually from within. That is how good character in people's lives get destroyed. That's how some Christians have been spoiled by by failing to see sin as Nehemiah saw sin. The evil thing which brings ruin and destruction to the choicest things. And by undetected infiltration, it corrupts the best of lives. You see, people just began to say, well, there's nothing wrong with this, right? You know how many pastors have thought, well, there's nothing wrong with looking at this woman And then soon he's looking at her seductively and then he's undressing her in his mind and then next thing you know, he has an affair. And it ruins not only his life, but the church. That's the way sin works. It is evil. Exactly as Nehemiah calls it. The identification of the problem demanded drastic, public, and immediate action. It was not a time for for reflection. Like, like we don't see Nehemiah saying, hey, let's let's have a time of reflection on this issue. Let's, Let's, everybody calm down. Let's think about this now. We don't see that. 
There's no delay. There's no compromise. The narrative com- conveys for us this prompt action and, and I don't know if you catch it, but this emotional intensity of the drama. Just look at verses 7 through 9. I, I love the verses probably because it plays into kind of um, my personality, I guess. Is, is probably why I love to read verses 7 through 9. But, but as we read them, look what it says. I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. Stop right there. So Nehemiah says, okay, I now have found out the evil. And so I, I said, let's, let's think about this and let's decide what is the best way to handle this evil. That, that, that's not what it says, right? I've discovered the evil, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So he says, I discovered the evil. Here's what the evil is. He's given him a, a, a place in the house of God. And what's he say? I was upset. My feelings were hurt. I got depressed. No, right? He says, I was very angry. What's he going to do about it? What are you going to do about it, Nehemiah? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I just picture this dude just going crazy. Like he's just grabbing stuff, you know, like an offering plate. And food. I'm glad I held on see me throwing that accidentally and hitting someone and anyway but that he's just going nuts throwing everything out of the place then i gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and i brought back the vessels of the house of god with the grain offering and the frankincense the bad was speedily removed and the good was immediately restored nehemiah acted precisely as jesus did Five centuries later, Christ also found Jerusalem, a holy place, cluttered with things that defiled the glory of the temple, contradicted its holiness, and marred the witness of the temple. And on entering the temple courts, the worshiper's mind was immediately diverted from the Lord's praise to the traitor's prophets. And let's be clear, the Lord shares His glory with no one. And Jesus walks into the temple. The temple which is built to glorify God. Not to further commercial enterprise. To promote an enduring spiritual enrichment. Not... not passing material gain. And like Nehemiah before him, Jesus tips over the merchant's tables and the money changers' booths and the marketplace had supplanted the holy place. Secularism had come to dominate life's priority. In Jesus' day, the sin was all the more serious and offensive. The selling was taking place in what was the court of Gentiles. This was the area where the non-Jews were permitted to listen to God's word and pray. If you weren't a Jew, you would go into the court of Gentiles and you could hear the word of God and you could pray. That's what it was there for. But the traitors had supplanted the seekers. That's why Jesus reminds them of of Isaiah's memorable words. My house will be called a house of prayer. 
And sometimes we stop there, right? We say, oh, well, see, remember when Jesus entered? He said, my house will be called a house of prayer. It doesn't stop there. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. They had a blatant misuse of the temple and it could not be tolerated. The temple was for the foreigners who were seeking the Lord, not for those that did not honor God. It was hindering God-fearing Gentiles from hearing the unique teaching of the Word of God and sharing in support of prayer. Nehemiah's temple narrative, like that which describes the cleansing of Jerusalem's later temple, has important things to say to us. Oh, how easily and even imperceptibly damaging things displace helpful things in our lives. Paul uses temple imagery in his teachings. He's teaching the the church at Corinth, Christians in Greek cities that were used to seeing impressive temples and wayside shrines to, shrines to pagan deities. And he reminds a, a Greek audience that God does not live in temples built by hands. And during Christ's ministry on earth, his, his human body became the temple of God. The focus of revelation, sacrifice, forgiveness, and intercession. The Lord's present temple is still not to be found in a material building. But in human life, please understand, church, this, this church, this building is not the Lord's temple. It's not. His temple is found in human lives and in a body of believers that comes together. Whether this church was here or not, if we came together and met with no building, we are still the body of Christ. We are still His temple. Paul told the Corinthian church that God's Spirit is resident in two places. The human body and in a spiritual community. Paul then says that now Christ has ascended. The body of the Christian believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He indwells our lives. And Paul uses the argument to urge the Corinthian believers to ensure that the temple of their human life is kept free from defilement. Their lives belong to God. Your life, if you're a believer, is not your own. You don't get to just do whatever you want. And please yourself. But you belong to God. That's Paul's whole argument. They were bought with a price. You're bought with a price. Therefore you honor God with your body. The body is meant for the Lord and is not to be polluted. As it was was with Eliashib and Tobiah. And their partnership. Damaging things can corrupt the believer's life. Things that we possess or ache to possess, things that we see or want to see, things that we hear or have heard, things that we've done or desire to do can all corrupt us. The temple of Christian personality is a vulnerable dwelling place and needs to be kept free from defiling influence. The cleansing can be costly. Jesus gives a vivid description of it in his teachings, right? He talks about a covetous hand and cutting it off. 
a lusting eye being plucked out. Sacrifice is essential to holiness. Delay is dangerous. Lack of firm resolution can prove morally and spiritually disastrous. Jesus teaches that it is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Christ presses the point even home even more, and so does Paul in the context of sexual temptation. In times like ours when permissiveness is actively encouraged and sexual offenses are rampant, yet connived at and and warning is socially uh, warning is socially relevant for god's glory at christ's command and by the spirit's strength we need to throw out anything that defiles the temple of our bodies this is the last thing i'm going to say about defiling the temple before we move on to point number two and now you know why we're only doing two points In another letter to Corinth, Paul makes a different use of temple imagery. He tells the believers that their corporate life is also the Lord's temple. When he tells them, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will love with them and walk, or I will live with them and walk among them. Now hear me closely, church. Just as sin has a devastating and defiling effect in the life of an individual. It can seriously devastate and defile a Christian community. Local churches are vulnerable to sin. They become littered with Tobiah's household goods. Sins which the enemy spawns. And our local churches, like unworthy clutter, unspiritual diversions, unhelpful talk, unsatisfied ambitions, ambitious or godly or godless rivalries, and selfish preoccupations. Paul had all those problems at Corinth. All such things need to be identified and removed from the local church. If the church is going to enjoy God's presence and reflect Christ's likeness and convert the Spirit's message effectively to an unbelieving world. There was a surplus of damaging household household goods in Corinth. And Paul was courageous enough to expose them. In the eyes of some people, it cost Paul his popularity to do so. I don't think Paul was too concerned with being popular. Some of the believers there had turned a blind eye to impurity and sexual sin and debauchery, all too common in Corinth, but totally impermissible within the temple of their corporate worship, fellowship, and witness. And Paul called them out on it. Nehemiah was the first courageous hero to cleanse a temple, but he certainly was not the last. Point number two. Not only do we see God's house defiled, but we see God's servants are neglected. God's servants are neglected. Let me pause for a moment and let you know that this is a hard point to preach. When you're in a small church and you are the only um, paid pastor in that church... It can be hard to talk about neglecting God's servants, okay? So let's just get that out of the way right now. 
so you know that some of this that I'm about to say is not easy stuff to say. Because I'm talking about the servants of God and them being neglected. And so in essence, I'm talking about myself. All right? So, so these servants were employed in Jerusalem just like they were meant to be. In fact, the Levites would have challenged Eliashib's laissez-faire policy of encouraging an Ammonite to live in the temple precincts in the first place. It was part of their work to teach biblical principles and maintain high biblical standards. However, their ministry became marginalized because the gifts of support dwindled and eventually dried up. They no longer had support. God's plan was that they would be totally maintained by the people's tithes. That was his plan. That the Levites would be able to do the ministry from the tithes of the people. And for that reason, when the country was divided, they didn't receive any allocated territory in Judah. So when they got together and they were dividing up land, the Levites didn't receive any. The Lord was to be their inheritance. They were to devote themselves entirely to spiritual work with their upkeep provided by the people's regular gifts of a tenth of their income. That's what kept the Levites fed. That's what kept them from having to work outside of of the temple. That's how they lived. That was the promise that they had made earlier by those who reaffirmed their commitment to the covenant. When it said in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 37, bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And then in verse 39, we have that famous verse. We will not neglect the house of our God. However, within a relatively short amount of time, God's house has been severely neglected once again by sins both of commission and of omission by what was done, providing a home for Tobiah and not done, not presenting gifts for the support of the Levites. The allocated gifts for the sacrifices were to be brought to the priests at the storerooms and occupied by Tobiah who defiled it. The ministry of the temple was no longer active within the spiritual life of Israel. This 5th century period when Jerusalem's spiritual life became lax, its priesthood careless, and its Levites unsupported is reflected in the teachings of Malachi. He describes a time when spiritual leaders were content to give him less than the best. The prophet Malachi also denounced those who divorced their Israelite wives in in order to marry foreign women. They possibly did this to gain financially by a new marriage because it would open up new trade contacts for them. Similar conditions are reflected in Nehemiah when he returned to Jerusalem and the men had married foreign wives. What had they done? They married the women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, according to verse 23. We know that the enemy has more than one way to bring destruction to the life of God's people. Here an Ammonite man may be evicted from the temple, but guess what? There are plenty of Ammonite women now living at the heart of Israel's spiritual and moral life, the family. They've been excluded from the temple, but they have gained a foothold in the home. 
In Malachi, his central theme is the non-payment of tithes. He pleads that these obligatory offerings for the upkeep of the Levites be brought to the temple. Nehemiah knew just how crucial the Levites' work had been in the teaching of the word as a singers and the encouraging of worship. Robbed of the necessary support, these men had been compelled to go out and work the land to maintain their family. So the Levites could no longer feed their family because they weren't being supported by the people who coveted together to support them. And so they said, we have no choice. We can't put food on the table. We got to go find a real job. You know, that's because being a Levite is not a real job. Like being a pastor is not a real job. We got to go find a real job. We got to go work the land in order to feed our family. With neglected teaching and diminished worship, the spiritual life in Jerusalem became impoverished. The people appointed by God to maintain high standards were no longer there to do so. And it's a little wonder that the laws about the Sabbath were then disregarded and those laws about marriage were ignored. One sin always follows hard on the heels of another. When God's word is not read and studied or taught, serious defects in our spiritual life are bound to follow. Jerusalem's culture was quickly secularized. Materialism became Judah's new God. Studied indifference to God's word became the order of the day. It did not matter what God thought anymore, and it certainly did not matter what the Levites taught anymore. Everybody pleased themselves and did what, felt, what they felt was right. That was a recipe for moral, marital, and spiritual disaster. When people persistently refuse to listen to the God who loves them, they can't hope to live a satisfying, resourceful, and useful life. The payment of tithes for the Levite support was crucial for the continuance of their work. The priests could exist on an allotted portion of the sacrifices, which they got to keep a portion of that which were brought to the temple. But the Levites had nothing. If the tithe was withheld, then God's voice through their ministry was effectively silenced. It's all a tragic reversal of the situation they were in sometime earlier. Right? When their hearts were filled with gratitude And high resolve when the people had put their seals to the covenant and shared with the worshiping crowds who dedicated Jerusalem's walls. At that time, the storerooms were packed to capacity with the abundant gifts of God's thankful people. In those days, giving was not some irksome duty. The people were delighted to give for the support of their teachers and their spiritual leaders. They loved to give. They loved to see their spiritual leaders be successful. Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. Think about this. A successful Levite meant that you were successful spiritually because you took care of your Levite who was teaching you God's word. They willingly donated for the ministry of God's word and work. And we notice how easily and quickly things can go into serious decline. In many parts of the world, excellent work could be done for the Lord if only there were sufficient resources to do it. Many opportunities have been passed over because Christian societies and missionary agencies do not receive enough money to meet present demands, let alone sponsor new initiatives. 
All Christians need to take this account of Israel's neglect of the Levites as both a warning and an encouragement. It's a warning against materialistic outlook that fails to act generously towards others. And it encourages us to give serious thought about proportionate, systematic, regular giving in our life. Without making it a legalistic obligation. There are many Christians that have used this to give a tenth of their, of their income to the church. I would emphasize it's a minimum guideline. Minimum because I believe that's where you start, it's not where you end. It's a good minimum guideline. One-tenth of your income to the Lord's work. That's, that's where you start. So I'm going to give a tenth. If I can give more, I will give more. But I'm going to start at a tenth. Just like Nehemiah cleared those temple rooms of unworthy things, so now he's determined to fill them with good things. Jesus gives a parable in Matthew chapter 12 that serves as a reminder to us that in human life, empty rooms are a potential hazard. Nehemiah organizes a team of helpers to ensure that the tithes of grain and new wine and oil, which are met for the Levites, are actually brought in to the newly vacated rooms. Now those rooms can be used again for their original purpose. Nehemiah knows that it is never enough to concentrate negatively on the exposure of evil. An ideal leader also encourages the promotion of good. It is very possible for the church leaders to be sensitive to and recognize what is wrong in the church and never promote what is right. Nehemiah did both. He recognized what was wrong and promoted what was right. Without the expulsion of evil, the good cannot prosper. And without the promotion of good, the evil will one day return. I'm going to stop there because there's so much to cover in the next two points. But I want you this morning to take just a few moments. I want you to think about these two points that we covered this morning. Both of these dealing with the fact that the God's house is forsaken. I want you to think about your life. I want you to ask yourself this morning, Lord, examine my heart. Reveal to me if I've forsaken God's house. You might say, well, there's no way that I've, I've defiled God's house. There's no way I've done that. But remember, we said that in the New Testament, God makes it clear that we are the temple of God. And Paul says collectively that we are the temple of God, meaning the church is the temple of God. And that sin not only defiles the life of an individual, but it has devastating and defiling effects on the church. And so many of our churches are indeed being defiled today by unworthy clutter, by unspiritual diversions, by unhelpful talk, by unsatisfied ambitions, by godless rivalries, and by selfish preoccupations. And perhaps this morning, the Lord's revealed in your heart some of these sins. And you just need to confess them to Him. You need to call out to God and say, God, I confess these sins to you. You need to get right with the Lord. But secondly, we talked about neglecting God's servants. And maybe you can ask God, God, reveal to me today if I've neglected God's servant. It's not easy, church, to stand up here and talk about neglecting God's servant. 
is not a sermon I looked forward to. Especially when you're the pastor. It feels like self-promotion. And to be honest, sometimes a sermon like this can cause us to fall into defiling God's house. Because we want to go out of here and be like, well, I can't believe what the pastor said today. Talk about money. We're just not giving enough. I can't believe the pastor feels like he's not being taken care of and we do these kinds of things and then we fall right into the sin of defiling God's house. I just want to challenge you, don't fall into that trap and that scheme of the devil this morning. I just want you to ask yourself this morning, are you giving all that you can to the Lord's work and the support of the Lord's servant? Just ask yourself, God, reveal in my heart, am I giving all I can to your work and the support of the Lord's servant? Here's what I'd ask you. Does the Lord's servant in your local context know that you love and care for him by your gifts? You know, I found that it's easy to see how others are falling short. Or others' sins. Or perhaps people aren't giving like you're giving. Well, you know, I know I give so much to this church and so-and-so over there. They don't give hardly anything. And I heard so-and-so gossip about pastor one time and got and we can go on and on and on it's easy to look at other people's sins and not look at what you are doing or should be doing but i'm asking you this morning to look at yourself where have you slipped into ways of our godless culture and after you deal with yourself then i would encourage husbands and fathers to give godly leadership and correction to your family when i give warnings of these spiritual dangers Rather than getting angry and leaving the church or being mad and gossiping about it, ask yourself, is what he's saying lining up with God's word? Are you thoroughly convinced this morning that when you get to heaven, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant? In fact, if you were to go home right now, are those the words you would hear? all I ask. God, search my heart. Let's close a prayer.